Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the gram, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we've got on another special guest. This is the author of the book, The End of Gender. And of course, this is Dr. Deborah So. Welcome to the show. Hi, Zuby. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here, Deborah. I've done a super brief intro of you right there, but for people who may not be familiar with you, please tell them who you are and what you do. So I am a former academic sex researcher and neuroscientist. I now work full-time as a journalist. And as you mentioned, my first book, The End of Gender, came out with Simon & Schuster in August of 2020. Uh, And I just launched this spring my podcast, The Dr. Deborah So Podcast. So it's a science-based podcast about sex, relationships. We talk about politics as well. And I talk to public intellectuals and all my favorite people about their marriages and their relationships and sex lives. And we also discuss the culture war and answer my audience's questions. That's been a lot of fun. Awesome. So you talk about everything that you're not really supposed to, basically. Basically, I feel that, I mean, as a journalist, that's supposed to be my job. But apparently that's not what we do in journalism right now. (laughs) Mainstream journalism anyway. Fair enough. So I'm curious to learn a little bit more about your background and how you got to the position that you're in right now. So can you tell us a little bit more about your story? Yeah. So uh, when I was in the final years of my PhD in academia, I had noticed that there was this growing trend of news coverage around kids with gender dysphoria. um, And what the news coverage was saying that the best way forward for these kids would be to transition and the earlier the better but from a scientific perspective the best approach is actually to wait for these kids until they reach puberty to see how they feel because most of these kids are going to outgrow their feelings of gender dysphoria they're more likely to grow up to be gay in adulthood not be transgender so it doesn't make sense for them to transition before then even a social transition would not be beneficial and i can talk about why Uh, so i had written an op-ed about this it was Based on the scientific research, everyone in the field knows that this is the truth. I mean, this literature is called the desistance literature, um, but it's not considered kosher with trans activists. And so I wrote this op-ed. I knew that if I published it, I would not be able to stay in academia, even if I waited until I had tenure to do so. So I made the decision to publish it and switch into journalism when I finished it, which was a really terrifying decision at the time, but it worked out for me. Academia has just continued to go downhill since I left. Mm. Uh, Not because I left, I would say just because that's (laughs) the climate we're in. So um, yeah, I'm really grateful that I have the opportunity to speak freely now and, and write about things that matter because I mean, these are decisions that are affecting people's lives and and parents and the public deserve to know what the truth is. So my book, The End of Gender, debunks nine myths in society. These are myths that are uh, taken at face value. And it's some people have mistaken what the title has been about. It's 
very much saying that biology matters and that gender is not something that is based solely in self-identification. Uh, so some of the myths that I debunk are, like I mentioned, the idea that children with gender dysphoria should transition, the idea that there are no differences between trans women and women who were born women. Um, we talk about cancel culture. I, I write about cancel culture in academia. I talk about mm -hmm. the fact that gender is binary. It's not a spectrum. Sex is binary as well. Gender is not a social construct. Uh, what other? Oh, and also the idea with dating and relationships that there are meaningful differences between men and women on average, and this plays out in terms of courtship and sex. Mm -hmm. What strikes me is that all of those things sound like common sense to 95% of the Earth's population all throughout time, places, and history. So how is any of that controversial now? Well, I don't think it is controversial. I don't think it should be. And I think most people who can think critically would agree with you that, that most of this stuff is just logical. But it's because I think a very small fraction of people, the activists, and transgender activists in many cases are not transgender themselves, and they mm -hmm. certainly don't speak for the trans community because I've had so many people reach out to me who are trans themselves because I'm not trans and I never want to seem like I'm speaking for trans people, but they reach out to me to thank me for what I say, which is always a relief to me. So these very um, vicious activists have decided to take on this agenda for themselves, either because it makes them feel good or because they have something to gain from it. And as a result, people who know better or know the truth, I think for the most part have been intimidated into staying quiet because they don't want to lose their jobs or face retribution as a result of going up against activists. And I mean, it's not fun to have to deal with that stuff on a day-to-day -day basis, but um, yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> I still, that clip of you lifting the weight, I mean, it's <laughs> hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. The amount of people who thanked me for that, um, especially in the media, actually, funnily enough, sort of behind closed doors, off the cameras, especially women, the amount of people yeah. who are just like, yes, thank you, finally, somebody, uh, somebody, you know, did this, you know, somebody, somebody said and showed what we've all been thinking, essentially. What I find most confusing about this issue, and, you know, I have my own theories around this, but it's the speed at which some of these ideas are seeming to be mainstreamed, even stuff that everybody knows is completely nonsensical, but is too afraid to say so. There's a lot of tiptoeing around, a lot of walking on eggshells. And it's very bizarre because some of these conversations, I mean, if you were to just go back to even 2010, 2011, these were not conversations, right? Like the, this wasn't, this, this issue wasn't taking up so much space in the conversations and it's not something people were thinking about, etc. So how do you think in such a short space of time, literally in under 10 years, this whole trans issue, gender ideology stuff has taken such a firm foothold, specifically in the West, because a lot of people say, oh, the world is going crazy or this is happening all that. And I'm like, no, this is very, this is very limited to a small number of countries right now. So what do you think has gone on in the past, I don't know, seven to eight years that's really brought this to a head? Well, I think 
as you've touched on, because we are very fortunate in the West, things are going well for us. So people have the time to think about these issues and really obsess and, and take on pet projects that if you're worried about things like having enough food to eat and having a place to live, you're going to have other things to be doing. So I think also the activists have been very, very good in their strategy in terms of how they've managed to get this into law and they've mm -hmm. got this into medical policy. They've been very effective at, at doing that. And then on top of the larger intimidation of um, anyone who dissents, it's very publicly taken down in some cases and shamed and, and called all kinds of names so that people don't want to associate with them. And then I also think it's because media has gone on board with this as well so that for the most part, the average person doesn't have time to go digging into the scientific research to see what the truth is. They're being told that the quote unquote new science backs up these ideas. So like the idea that there are millions of genders. So they, they think, okay, well, the news wouldn't lie to me. These people wouldn't, medical professionals wouldn't lie to me. So this must be what the truth is now. And so I think that's a big part of it. There's such a confusion and people are actively being lied to. So it, it's very disturbing to me because when people cannot actually just look at a scientific paper or look at a scientific or medical organization and trust that they are giving you fact-based information, that's a real problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a massive problem. I mean, all the institutions which we are supposed to trust and be able to take at face value have been corrupted, for lack of a better word. That's the truth from academia to the world of science to the media, as you mentioned before, so many aspects of everything, you know, of course, we already know the situation with with governments. But it's a I think we live in a weird time, because it feels like you can't trust the sources you're supposed to be able to trust. I mean, we've seen this very much beyond this issue. We've seen this very much over the past 16, 17 months, right. And it's very weird, because I think people feel a bit disorientated, because you don't you literally don't know what to trust who to trust it makes you more skeptical right the people who are called conspiracy theorists yeah. you know they just seem to be ahead of the curve and everything yeah. that, you know they're saying comes to light later down the line and then I, I don't know it just seems in every single avenue like with me I, i'm i'm at the stage where you know i mean like i i, I barely watch tv i barely read the news i, I tend tend to get my information from like individuals that I trust, and then occasionally looking at various sources and kind of doing my own thinking around them. But it, it's weird, you know, in, in one way, I guess it's good for people to do their own digging. But I think the problem is, most people do not, as you alluded to earlier, most people don't, no matter what the issue is, they will just see what's on CNN, BBC, um, I don't know, uh, Fox in the in the newspaper, whatever. And they'll just jump with that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I, it's a real problem because I don't blame people for not being able to stay on top of this because ideally journalism should be objective as well. And people don't, like I said, they don't have time. The only reason I'm, I know all this is because, well, it's my focus of research when I was in academia and mm -hmm. now it's my job as a journalist. So I think, you know, the critical thinking aspect is really important as well because I think there are some people out there who just it's a lot of work to have your own opinion. And in many cases, people don't want to go against the grain because it's uncomfortable. You potentially lose friends, you alienate people. You have to worry about, are you going to get fired for speaking your mind? Like that's a real problem today. 
So I, I would say for, I mean, I'm sure your audience is full of people who are skeptical and I would say, just don't be afraid to say what you think. I mean, I think this culture of fear is, is a huge problem. And that's why we are where we are because the more we stay quiet, the more that the loud people who are unhinged and don't know what they're talking about continue to gain more ground. And they know that. I, I sense, I'm not sure if you've had the same experience, but I think some people, they think they can bully you and make you shut up and you'll go away. And if you don't, they realize and they move some, they go, they go pick on someone else. Yep. Mm, yeah, no, I, I keep telling people that. Um, and it's also why I get really annoyed when people do these struggle session style public apologies for things that they didn't do wrong because it simply emboldens the mob. You know, every time someone does that, I'm just like, stop, you're literally giving them more and more power. And the truth is, it's it's such a large number of people being cowed by such a tiny, a tiny, tiny number. It's like we live in an age where 100 angry people on Twitter are suddenly able to control the thinking and speech of quite literally millions of people. And I find that very bizarre and disturbing. And as you've said, I mean, if you just take a stand and you're like, hey, you can't bully me, all right? Like, it's not going to work on me. Then they go and pick a, weaker, pick a weaker target, you know, and they hunt in packs. You know, these are people who are very weak individually in most cases. But if they can kind of get that mob stirred up, then all of a sudden they'll go online and start saying all this crazy stuff. And wh why do you think that you are able to, why do you think you've been able to take a stand when most people can't? I think it's probably my personality. I would say though, one thing I've noticed, I agree with you, I, I don't think it's good to capitulate to the mob, but I also don't like when people bully people who do apologize because I think, well, that doesn't really help the situation. <laughs> not, to, not to say that you've done that, I'm sure you yeah, haven't, yeah, but. Yeah. But I just think this whole right now, every, we are so polarized and everyone is so angry and so quick to lash out. And definitely, it's not fun to be mobbed on social media. But I would say to anyone who's watching, your first mobbing is always the worst. And then after that, honestly, it's like a walk in the park. You're like, this again? Okay, go ahead. What are you going to do? Go ahead. So I think that's from, it's my personality. It's my sense of humor, too. I just have a very dry sense of humor. And I just... I, tr I try to find the funny in everything. So in my podcast, especially some of the things we talk about are very serious, but it's a little bit more lighthearted than probably what people are used to seeing from me just because it's a, it's a different topic. It's I, I wanted to do that to allow to see people to see, I think, mm -hmm. that I'm not always super serious. Obviously, the issues I talk about in politics and the culture war to me are very serious and I take them seriously. But um, I think just being able to have that mindset that at the end of the day, you know what's important to you, you know who really matters to you in your life. And so strangers on the internet who don't know you, who want to call you names. I mean, I get added to hate lists. And I, I look at these organizations and some of these organizations I once really respected. I'm thinking they actually think I'm hateful. Like that's crazy uh -huh. to me. They think I'm transphobic and they think I'm a bad person. And I, I'm thinking if you anyone who has read my book, they see they say to me, you're so compassionate and reasonable. I don't understand what all the fuss has been about this. So, I mean, that's that's what matters to me is that the people who actually take the time to read it get my message. So you can't you can't care otherwise, because I, it's it is the people who are smearing those of us who speak out. They have an they have an incentive to do so. So. Yeah, exactly. And I don't even really think that they believe you are those things. You know, I think it's literally, it's a weapon. It's a weapon. It's a tool. If you can label someone with some kind of ism or phobia, then um, 
it means that you don't then have to take them seriously or you can encourage other people not to. I do think this is getting very diluted. I, I think it is getting to the stage where more and more people are kind of like, you know, these labels, they're just not sticking, which in itself is its own issue. Um, I call it label inflation, right? Mm-hmm. So the word racist now, I mean, I don't know, 15 years ago, if I heard that somebody was a racist, I was like, ooh, that's a serious charge, right? I'd take it very seriously. Now it's almost at the stage where I'm like, hmm, it probably means they said something interesting, <laughs> right? And that's kind of concerning, right? Because yeah. if some, you know, like racism is a, is a real thing. It's a bit like what they're doing now. Like they're recently people, you know, many activists have been like, okay, racism is not a strong enough charge. Now it's white supremacy, right? So they've now diluted the term white supremacy, which actually means like by proper definition has a very specific and pretty serious meaning. You know, someone truly believes that, you know, the white race of people is literally inherently superior and should therefore control and run things. Like that's a out there hardcore belief system, right? That's the stuff that the KKK, Nazi ideology, et cetera, is based on. So when you dilute the term to simply describe a company that has like a white CEO or a room (laughs) full of white people or whatever, and you start saying that, uh, you know, you start accusing black people and Asians and and brown people of being white supremacist or white supremacist adjacent. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, or Hitler being called Hitler. Yeah, it's just like, come on, guys, like, what term are we now going to use? If, if those type of people and those ideologies in the future do start rising again, we're, we're out of words. Like, what do you what do you actually call it? What, do, what are you going to call them? Ultra super mega white supremacists, like extra ultra far right, you know, so I think it's really important to use language correctly. I know language naturally shifts, but the sort of bastardization that's happening with the language, I think actually in the long term is very concerning. Yeah, the hyperbole is not necessary. I do think racism is a serious problem, and I think it should be taken seriously. But like you're saying, if everything is racist, now when you when you point out legitimate racism, people just say, oh, okay, you're one of those people who is always complaining about racism. You call everything racist. We're not going to listen to you or take it seriously. So then, like mm-hmm. you said, what are you, what are you supposed to do? What, what can you do to, to bring awareness and actually have something taken seriously now? I don't think they think that far ahead. Or if they do, they don't care if that's the yeah. case. Yeah, I think just, that's a I'm big... Gonna, yeah, go retweet. ahead. I'm, I'm listening, but I'm going to retweet your... Okay, uh, cool. Your link out. Awesome. Yeah, no, I think that's... A, I think it's a big problem, actually. Um, this thing, people not thinking far ahead because it seems to be the source of one of the sources of a lot of the issues we're currently dealing with in politics, society, culture, etc. It's people not practicing second, third, fourth order thinking. It's just them doing or saying something that they think is expedient at the moment and not really seeing, okay, well, where does this, where does this go? And the people who try to ring the warning of that are often dismissed and again, stuck with certain labels. So, yeah, I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Well, I think it's just about short-term gain. Mm. So if it's a power grab or if it's to look good in the moment in terms of your particular group or your organization or, I mean, say in academia, there are academics who go along with this. I don't think they care so much what the truth is. They've completely lost sight of the whole purpose of being in academia or being a scientist. It's just about seeming virtuous or seeing, seeming on board with whatever the correct view is so that you get more attention and you advance in your career. So it's I think it's a more selfish um, approach to things. 
I'm not sure what the solution is. Yeah. Where do you think uh where do you think this goes? Where do you think this goes? Do you think people are going to start taking more of a stand against this? I I feel like it's it's slow and it's late, but I'm starting to see more and more people actually actively speaking out against this stuff and starting to draw a little line. Are you seeing the same thing or do you think this is going to get worse before it gets better? I think with regard to say gender, it's going to continue to get worse. I think more okay. people are getting fed up, but I I I think more people need to speak up before that happens because you see with say the issue around kids and transitioning, this is still being fought. So I would say more so I think in the UK people are waking up sooner to it. In North America it's still very much people are in denial or they're they're still afraid but i think the the recent ruling with kirabell's case and then also with the detransitioners like really getting more attention um but you see like 60 minutes did that great segment on detransitioners and they got so much pushback for it and i'm thinking the activists can try all they want to suppress this information so detransitioners i'm, I'm sure most people are aware but i'll just define as individuals who uh, transition and then go back to living as their birth sex. So there's been this huge wave in the last, I would say, five or so years of predominantly in people born female transitioning to live as male. So in some cases, they'll undergo hormone therapy. So they'll take testosterone. They make it a double mastectomy. In some cases, they will have their ovaries and their uterus removed. And then the, a couple of years will go by and they'll realize that they made a mistake. So they'll go back to living as female but now they have to live with the permanent side effects of these interventions and also whatever was going on in their life before they made the decision to transition. So in some cases, it's psychopathology, maybe they had anxiety or um, eating disorders. Autism is very common as well. In some cases, it's just young women who are not comfortable with their bodies. They don't appreciate being sexualized by society. Some of them have histories of sexual trauma. So that stuff is not talked about because now clinicians have to affirm pretty much at face value if someone says they want to transition. So there's this is a very growing um, segment of, of people, and you can't shut them down forever. It's going to come to light. It's going to come more, more and more so to light, and it's going to be really, really sad. Yeah, it's a very weird situation. Um, so I have a question for you because mm -hmm. I have my own view on this, and my view is, is very simple. Um, and it's what <laughs> it's, it's what everyone seemed to be up until five minutes ago, which is this differentiation or distinction that some people make between sex and gender. When you use those terms, do you use them interchangeably or do you mean different things when you say sex and you say gender? They are similar, but they're not the same. Um, so I'll, I'll define both terms. So okay. biological sex, even though biological sex is considered a hateful term, I will use it. I try not to use it in the context of trans people because I don't think we need to be insensitive. I mean, I will use the pronoun someone wants how to is that, use. How is that insensitive? Well, to refer to, say, a trans woman as a biological male. I, Me personally, I won't do that because I just okay, think interesting. it's not necessary to point out the fact that by virtue of them being a trans woman, we know that they were once male and now they live as female. So that's just my personal choice. Okay. Some people don't see it as offensive, but I, I try to be as respectful as possible. And I, I could understand why for someone who is transgender, they may not like that. So, uh, so biological sex is determined by gametes. So these are mature reproductive cells. So you have eggs and sperm. And 
gender for 99% of us is the same as our biological sex. So for that 1% who is either intersex and or transgender, they identify potentially as the opposite sex or now maybe a third gender. Um, but sex refers to biology. Gender is also influenced by biology. But gender is in relation to how you feel about your sex. So it's slightly different. I see all kinds of weird extrapolations nowadays where some people say that sex and gender are completely different things. Um, and then some people will say that sex and gender are by definition the same thing, and that's not correct either. Does that answer your question? It does. It's because I think this manipulation of words is where a lot of these issues sort of come from. I mean, my entire life, sex and gender have been used interchangeably. I use mm -hmm. them interchangeably, right? Unless we're talking about a language, for example, where you've got you know, a gendered language like French or Spanish or Italian or whatever. Um, but when it comes to human beings, certainly, I know, like all throughout my life, you know, we've always used them interchangeably. So I think that a lot of this ideology stems from this notion of, okay, we're going to, we're going to separate the sex and gender. And now that creates this whole it creates this, again, it creates like a whole new, it opens another Pandora's box, which I think then allows all of these weird word games to be played, yeah. where people start, you know, saying, oh, you know, it's this or oh, it's sex, but, you know, gender, gender, you know, and then you have some people, like you said, who say, oh, gen you know, gender is a social construct. And so they'll right. say, you know, gender is a spectrum, sex is binary, maybe, or you'll say, get people now saying, oh, biological sex is not a thing, or it doesn't exist, or... It doesn't uh, exist. Uh, yeah, like, there's just all of this weird stuff. Again, the, the strangest thing to me, like, it's, it's weird I'm even talking about this on a podcast, because I'm just like, how, why, and how is this how a did thing? We get and here? Yeah. yeah, how did we get here? And even if, like, like, and you're also talking about such a you know, like I know people who, who are, are transgender or identify as such myself because I just know so many people. But it's like we're talking about such a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of the population as well. And like I was saying earlier, it, it sort of blows my mind how much. But I do think the issue has been forced. It's kind of been forced on people, hasn't it? Right. Like over the past few years. Again, I think most people, whether they're regardless of their own personal views of this. Whether they're, you know, conservative or they're liberal, whatever, regardless of whatever, I think in the West, you know, most people are pretty live and let live, right? Like most people don't really care. It's like, okay, cool. Like maybe I don't get that thing, but if that's what you want to do, fine. But when it starts encroaching on other people's territory or other people's rights or people start trying to control people's speech or start, you know, getting people uh, investigated by the police or arrested mm -hmm. like you even can be in some places or people getting banned off social media or having males competing in female sports, all of these things, it forces the issue on the 99% plus of people who already actually were like, okay, like whatever, I don't really care. But now you're sort of being forced to think about it and to take a stand and to draw certain lines Whereas actually before people were just like, okay, whatever, you know, largely oblivious. Yeah, I think part of the very intentional push to separate gender from sex or to use the word gender and not use the word sex mm -hmm. is so that people can, activists can then say, well, because gender is different from sex, this is why trans people can exist. So I think that's part of it. 
And then it's also just, it's crazy the things that people send to me from the workplaces, the stories I hear in terms of, you know, having to, it's pretty much across the board now. People have to announce their pronouns in various interactions or put it in their email bios or social media bios or even I've seen name tags where they put their pronouns on. And I mean, most, I would say if you actually speak to trans people, they will say that they don't appreciate that because (laughs) they transition and they, they would like people to recognize them as the gender they identify as they should not have to tell people, right? Like that intuitively makes sense to me. So it's really all these, as you said, only six in a thousand people. Uh, in the U.S. in terms of statistics, uh, identifies transgender. Uh-huh. I'm sure that number is going to go up. The latest actually statistic with high schoolers is 2% of American high schoolers are transgender. Uh, which Isn't that just trendiness I mean, and social contagion? Yeah, well, for sure. But so, I mean, why are, why are non-transgender people going to such an extent to virtue signal their progressivism? And I consider myself to be liberal, but I'm just not insane like that. <laughs> I, you know what I mean? <laughs> I just think that's terrible. Like, don't use a don't use a community of people to make yourself feel or look good. Yeah, it's extremely narcissistic for multiple reasons. Number one, because you know when 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 you see on social media like a dude named Steve with a beard, and then it's got the he him, or you know a woman with long hair who's clearly a woman named Deborah, and it's like she her. It, it's you will so... never see pronouns in my bio. <laughs> never. never. It's it's so extraordinarily narcissistic. Also because you're talking, that's for pronouns are for when, firstly, like you don't pick your own pronouns, like you don't pick your own adjectives and adverbs, like that's not how language works. But also people are going to call people by what they look like by default. We've always done this. Everybody does it. Even the people who propose this ideology, right? If they see one of us, they're going to just say he, her, like they're not going to be like, oh, hang on. What are this person's pronouns? Like nobody actually does that in real life. And it would be very, very silly to. And then also, if you're talking to someone, right, like in this whole conversation, you've never referred to me as he or him. And I've never referred to you as she or her because if we you don't want to di- make assumptions, <laughs> but if you're speaking directly to someone, you don't use pronouns anyway. No. You call people by their name or you call them you. So it's actually extra narcissistic to me because it's like trying to police pe- how other people are referring to you. You know, it would be a bit like, I mean, you're, you're a doctor, right? So in some capacities, there are situations where you would want people to refer to you as a doctor. But if you are sort of making a big deal out of, oh, you know, two other people are having a conversation about you elsewhere <laughs> and they're talking about you and you're trying to sort of force them to use your title. All this. It's just like, that's very narcissistic. And yeah, there's something very, it's very strange and peculiar. And it's also just weird because again, it's so new. I'm just like, we've been doing perfectly fine as a species without <laughs> pronouns in bio, right? Like uh, we've, we've been navigating social media, okay, and life without these announcements so what's going on here and as you've said for someone who is actually trans like again if someone looks like a woman then you by default your brain will say her she if the person looks like a man regardless of their genitalia or chromosomes or whatever then you're gonna naturally sort of say that so I don't know. I mean, with a lot of this stuff, I do think 
the real goal is sort of divide and conquer. And I guess it, I guess it works very well. Um, but I think that there's sort of, you know, people much higher up who are kind of dropping these things in there and then watching we the plebs complain and mm-hmm. get angry about them. Oh, for sure. It's definitely like a, <laughs> a self-reinforcing loop because I think on some level, the people who are pushing this, they know they're going to get a response and then it's going to it gives them exactly what they want. But mm-hmm. it is very narcissistic. I think in some cases there's other psychopathology potentially that's going on there. Maybe it's personality disorders, might be anxiety, especially for, I would say, the non-binary trend or people who identify as a third gender. Mm-hmm. They will become upset if they are, are identified as male or female. They want to be identified as a third or somewhere in between. And or especially those people who have they put in their bio that they identify as she they and they they want <laughs> they want to be identified some of the time as she and some of the time as they and if you don't mix it up enough they get upset i go in the book i have an entire ch- chapter dedicated to this it's it's wild yeah it's it's so nutty i it it blows my mind maybe people in the i don't know maybe this is like the the african within me who grew up in the middle east where I'm just like, I'm not playing. Like, I'm just like, I'm not playing this game. Do you know? <laughs> I'm just like, no, this is ridiculous. I, I know everyone else is too polite to say this is ridiculous, but no, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm not, I'm not referring to you as she sometimes and they sometimes. I'm not, I'm not referring to an individual person as plural. Like, no, I'm not doing that. Or especially when you get into the nonsensical ones like Zizir or. I learned another one recently. It's like faith, fear. Yeah. It's, like, is this English? I don't know. It's funny. Like on on one hand, I'm like these people are great trolls. Like I, I'm like maybe they don't believe in this at all. Like they're just sitting there. Like you know what? I'm gonna just like t- change my pronouns to like fue fue whim, and I'm gonna just watch you struggle as you try to be politically correct and just keep stumbling over the words. Yeah, for sure. But then it's also a, a plays on us for getting upset and saying, look at these people. So <laughs> I almost hope that's what they're doing. I really do. <laughs> that's crazy. So before you got into this whole world of, you know, all this stuff we're talking about now and even some of the political aspects, what what were you doing before that? Uh, in terms of my research, I... Yeah. Uh, I so I was a sex researcher. I was using brain imaging techniques to better understand human sexuality and specifically paraphilias, which are unusual sexual interests, and also hypersexuality. So hypersexuality is known more commonly as quote unquote sex addiction, but there's actually no scientific evidence to suggest that sex addiction is a real thing. People, I mean, I, people will struggle f- with excessive sexual behaviors. Uh, in some cases, say pornography viewing or cheating, those are legitimate problems, but it's not because they're addicted to sex. Usually there are other things going on in their life that lead them to to act out in this way. Mm. Okay. What are those things? I'm actually curious. Uh, procrastination is a big one. So mm-hmm. say with pornography viewing, people get really upset at me the times I've talked about this, but I'm going to, I speak the truth. So uh, you know, if, if you're struggling with pornography, I'd really suggest, I mean, there are great therapists out there who can help you um, overcome this. But it has to, I would really strongly suggest seeking out support from a therapist who's sex positive. Because in many cases, any issue around sex, if it's not a therapist who specializes in sex therapy or who is 
sex positive and the term sex positive has taken on a new meaning as well when i say sex positive i just mean there should be no shame around human sexuality or talking about it but now sex positive again like like everything has gone completely so far left that in some cases people use it to mean like anything goes and that mm -hmm. if you have boundaries that's a bad thing but I, what you'll see is in many cases people who have issues around excessive sexual behavior in some cases their behavior is not even really excessive they just feel a lot of shame or guilt about it but with say pornography viewing in many cases it's procrastination so it's that they there are other things that someone needs to do whether it's related to work or school or maybe they have to have an uncomfortable conversation with their partner so instead of doing that they turn to porn and if you give them coping skills i don't do clinical work anymore but if if you work with these individuals and help them have better coping skills, learn assertiveness, you see that the time they spend looking at porn actually goes down and they don't rely on it as a coping strategy anymore. Okay. That's interesting. Give me another uh, interesting fact that I won't know. Uh, I would say, so you see a lot of celebrities. There's a period a couple of years ago where it seems like every celebrity was going to quote unquote sex addiction therapy. And in many cases, I mean, you look at these celebrities, they're good looking and they have money. So they're going to get a lot of female attention. And that's just the reality of it. Are they addicted to sex or are they just maybe a little bit entitled and maybe they don't want to be monogamous with their partners? So that's another thing I see. You see people often blaming their bad. And, and I think cheating is bad. You should not cheat on your partner. But if it's because someone just has a lot of sexual prospects and they want to indulge in that, it's not appropriate to call it an addiction because it's not actually going to help someone if they go into a treatment that is not targeting what's really going on in terms of why they're behaving the way they behave. And mm -hmm. in some cases, it's not an issue, their behavior. I mean, some people, again, it depends on the individual case, but you'll have some people who, say, if, say with porn viewing, if they're looking at porn once a week or once a month, they, they'll say that they have a problem. But I think most people, it depends on, I guess, what your views are in pornography. But I would argue if it's not impacting your ability to get things done in the day, is it really a problem? Or is it that some people think that they shouldn't be looking at that for moral reasons or because mm. their partner doesn't like it? So that's a different conversation. But I would, you know, I see a lot of that with partners i think it's important to have a conversation about what your expectations are and if monogamy is not for you i mean me personally i'm monogamous when i'm in a relationship but i think people see that as the default and for some people that's just not what they want so that's their choice but again talk to your partner about that and in that case you're not addicted to sex it's just you you like sexual variety i mean men on average have a greater preference for sexual novelty and sexual variety than women so from an evolutionary perspective, mm -hmm. it would make sense. Not to say that, again, cheating is justified. In, in the end of gender, I have a chapter, as I mentioned, dedicated to evolutionary or sex differences in dating, and evolutionary psychology is a, plays a big role in that. But people want to pretend as though evolutionary psychology is sexist or outdated, and that's just not true. And if you actually understand that scientific research, it will help you, I think, have a much more successful dating, sex life, um, so in the book, I do list all the studies with all these issues that I talk about and, and also as to why um, trans athletes, trans female athletes should not be competing against women. Are you trying to deny my record? Well, see, I wasn't sure if I should bring this up in this conversation. <laughs> I'm a little bit hesitant saying that just now. 
<laughs> I wasn't sure if you'd boot me off of the stream. <sighs> well, you're canceled. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, man, I was just, uh, I was just having a conversation about that issue earlier today, funnily enough, because of this, uh, weightlifter from New Zealand, uh, Laurel mm-hmm. Hubbard, who's going to be in the Olympics, which of course, this past week, everybody has been sending me, you know, telling me I need to step up to the plate, telling me I've got competition, so on and so you forth. Should. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I think it might be too late to qualify. And, you know, powerlifting is not actually in the Olympics. I think it should be. But um, I don't actually do weightlifting. I do powerlifting. So I don't know if I could really compete on that one without a lot of training. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, if we can start a petition for this, I will do it. <laughs> <laughs> so of all the stuff that you talk about, what is the most – what do you get the most pushback about? What is the most – what makes people angry? I would probably say the issue with the kids transitioning. I think. Oh, interesting. Okay. That one. I'm trying to think if there's something that has topped that one so far. But I mean, I, I think countering anything because the the term transphobic. It. I don't believe I'm transphobic because I only have love for trans people. Mm-hmm. I. I don't think it's a real I, word, but. Uh, why? Why is it not a? It's like when they use phobia to just scare people off from talking about things exactly it's not a real word i mean it would be like if someone had a i'm a christian and if someone you know it would be like oh someone has an issue with that i just oh you're christian phobia like it's it's not a word like someone just you just brought that in as a weapon right it's Mm. was that a word in 2005 no no um so i think it's a tool it's a weapon right i don't think it's are there are there people who are afraid of trans people i mean Maybe there are. I'm I'm not aware of this. Um, I think it's an activist-created term. I, I would agree. I think there's definitely an overuse of it or a, definitely an embracing of using that term to mm-hmm. scare people off and to silence people. But I do think there are some people who – there is discrimination against trans people, and it is something I think about because I want to be respectful and responsible with the things I say. Mm-hmm. But I think saying anything that counters this idea that children, no matter how young they are, should be allowed to transition, uh, that's just considered transphobic because – but even even though there are trans people who agree with that and say, no, children should not transition because even yeah. – so, as I mentioned earlier, a social transition, if, so if, even if a child just changes their haircut, wears different clothes, lives as the opposite sex, but doesn't undergo any medical interventions – they are more likely to go on and continue transition down the line. That's been shown uh-huh. in research. And it's not as though a child is at any point in time going to just change their mind and say, I want to go back to living as my birth sex because uh-huh. they're getting so much praise and attention from their peers and from the adults in their lives. And in some cases, their parents, that a child, it, it's very difficult for a child to to basically turn away from all of that. And people really that part of the conversation isn't really given much weight because people focus so much on just wanting to validate the child and make them feel accepted. And I think you can do that while saying, yes, dress how you want, have the friends you want, play with the toys you want, but you're going to live as the sex you're born at, born as until you get to this age where the research, as I said, suggests yeah. that's the more fruitful conversation. It, it because blows clinicians my, can't yeah, talk ahead, about that. I was just going to say, yeah, the clinician, I mean, because this is now enforced in law where clinicians can't ask these questions. So, yeah. Yeah, I think this is a an awful, awful experience, experiment that humanity is going to look back on and wonder WTF 
<laughs> they we were doing. I, I I already think that. I mean, when it comes to the issue of this with children, ah, I draw such a hard line in the sand. Like I'm, I don't budge on this one. I'm just like, no. If you're an adult, I mean, because again, you're opening a a very very terrible Pandora's box. Very ten terrible. If you are saying that children have the ability to consent to this, what else do they have the right to consent to? Right. If a child can consent to making these super life-changing alterations, many permanent in certain cases, if you're talking about actual, you know, hormones or surgeries, etc., then a lot of the arguments and the things that delineate between children and adults in our society, those arguments now start to erode. We all know, I mean, the whole basis of a lot of society and even the legal system is we do not treat children and adults the same way. And so if you allow that and that starts becoming normalized, then literally there's no there's no argument against um, you know, the arguments that are based around children not being able to consent to adult decisions, mm. that then goes out the window. And again, with people only thinking of sort of first order consequences, they don't think that far ahead. Or maybe I think maybe there's some insidious people who do, and that's what they want. Um, but to me, it's very, very obvious that that is the next step. And I'm just like, hell no. I'm like, no, like I'm not, you can call, you can call me all kinds of phobias and isms. I do not care. I'm drawing a hard line in the sand on that one. I'm just like, no, like if you're, if you're an adult and you want to do what you want to do, go ahead. Right. You don't, you don't need my mm -hmm. approval. You don't need other people's approval, et cetera. If you're not harming or hurting anybody, but with kids, I'm just like, guys, what are y'all doing? Like, what can you, how can you not see what is going on here? Like, how can you not see that? Yeah, it's disturbing, especially the parents who are, it seems like they are so, they're just so on board with it. I feel for the parents who are going along with it because they're being told their child's going to commit suicide if they don't, because that is what parents are actually being told by the being, being told by who? By medical professionals. They're being told that if they have a choice between, say, if they have a child who's born male, you have either a, a happy daughter or a dead son. That's what they're actually being told. That's the narrative. So parents feel understandably that this is the only choice they have because, of course, they don't want their child. Who, what, what parent is going to say, yes, I prefer a dead child? Yeah, so, of course not. I'm just I'm just shocked that any parent would buy that line of propaganda. I mean, human beings, have, we've existed for a while and this is a brand new thing. And that was not some binary choice before i mean we don't need to go back very far in the thousands in the 90s in the 80s in the 70s and all throughout what about the rest of the world right like why is this only mm -hmm. happening in the west right like yeah. how come it's <laughs> i made a tweet before which was a little bit facetious but it was um i said something like the more the more successful a country becomes the more genders there are or something <laughs> like that right because i'm just like again if this were some global phenomenon or something that's everywhere, then it's like, okay, well, you'll you'll see that everywhere. I mean, because people often try to tie this with, uh, I mean, it's even in the acronym, right? LGBT. People try to latch it onto the sexuality aspect, which is weird because actually it's a totally different thing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, but with something like homosexuality, you can see, okay, all throughout history, all across the wor world, 
there are people who are who are homosexual. All right, like some in some places it may be more rep- repressed or treated differently socially, but it's clearly okay. Whatever the reason for it, that's something that like that that's there. But when you're talking about this particular issue, and you're talking about these rapidly rising numbers, especially amongst children, and you're talking about this and that, then it's like okay, well, obviously. This is something that's very ideologically based, social contagion based. I mean, the fact that, and I think uh, if I'm correct, a lot of that rise has been with young girls far more than young boys. I mean, all of that stuff very strongly suggests, okay, this is being ideologically driven. This is being pushed by certain messages and certain activists and certain people. This is not just like a natural thing that's, that's going on. I understand that there are people with gender dysphoria, and that's something that has been around for a long time um but in the way it is now i'm like this is this is very new and very weird and it's not making logical sense it's not making rational sense it's not making ethical sense in certain instances and yeah i'm just i'm i'm just concerned with where it all goes you know i think left unchecked it's already getting to bad levels in certain things but I really, really do am concerned, especially with uh, this issue regarding children. Yeah, and even with that that um, LGBT plus initialism, the Q that's been tacked on because now everybody says LGBTQ. I won't because I, I think one queer started as a slur against the gay community, so I don't like to use that word. But it's pretty much everyone under the sun is identifying as queer nowadays. And when you actually, if you actually look at who these people are, they're usually straight women. So I'm thinking because there was actually a study, and I cite this in my book, there's a study done, and I'm thinking, how can you co-op, again, how can you co-opt a community because you want to have more points to, or more boxes to tick in the intersectional checklist? I mean, to me, that's offensive, but, mm. you know, I'm not sure if you know lots of people who identify as queer, but to me, I, it's just bizarre that, that, that straight people have decided, okay, this is a cool thing now to, to self-identify our way into this community. Yeah, well, people can't be that oppressed. I mean, people don't tend to try to self-identify into groups who are genuinely oppressed, do they? Mm. Right. Well, I mean, there's there's some sort of cachet to it now, isn't there? Yeah. Well, the the other thing is with the childhood transition. I'm especially critical. I grew up in the gay community. I'm straight, but mo- like almost all of my friends growing up were gay men, and I see this the childhood transition as a way to turn gay children straight because mm-hmm. if they live as the opposite sex and they're same sex attracted, they appear heterosexual yes and yep, that, that's, that's something that people don't call it for what it is mm, that's a really interesting aspect to it as well it's a very interesting aspect to it and i mean i think there's places like iran for example where that's literally what they do isn't it right like if someone is gay i think in iran oftentimes they will recommend it might even be subsidized by the government that they actually have a sort of sex change surgery or hormone replacement so that they can then you know appear straight um, which is, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, by certainly the terminology of people who talk about this stuff, that could be considered a form of, you know, very real homophobia, where it's like, okay, well, instead of you being a gay man or a gay woman, you're going to be, you know, we're going to, we're going to transition you. And now you're, now you appear to be straight kind of thing. It's, it's very odd. Yeah, I think a more useful conversation would be to talk to someone and say, you know, there's nothing wrong with being gay. And 
if someone still decides as an adult that they would like to transition, then that's their business. Because another part of it is in terms of the partners that someone wants to attract. So say for someone who is born male and identifies as female, or someone who's born male who is attracted to very, very masculine men, very masculine men tend to be attracted to women because they tend to be straight. There are some masculine gay men, but the majority of masculine men are heterosexual. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason for transition. And then the other reason for transition is autogynephilia, which is a, is a paraphilia. So as I mentioned, it's an unusual sexual interest. So it's because these individuals find it erotic, the idea of becoming a woman actually turns them on. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, I talk about this in the book that I think if you want to, if someone with autogynephilia, they want to transition as an adult, that's their business. I don't think that should be used to discriminate against anyone or to justify negative stereotypes about trans people. But it's an important part of the conversation because if we're not talking about it, again, people cannot get the care that they need in order to make a good decision as to whether transition is going to be right for them. Mm. Well, there's a lot here. <laughs> 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 there's so there's so much here. There's so much here. I mean, in your in your mind, in your world, what do you think is the what do you think is the sort of proper or ideal outcome of this whole situation experiment it's, it feels like an experiment to me as far as i'm concerned where do you yeah. think it's uh i mean i know i know my person i know my personal view on it but what what do you what do you think well i think in an ideal world scientists no matter what the issue i mean it goes beyond gender i would say even you alluded to covid or whatever else scientists should be able to just do their jobs Politics is everywhere, so of course it's going to infect science, unfortunately. But in an ideal world, scientists would be able to do their jobs and the public would have faith that they are ethical, their science, the scientific method was designed to parse out bias, including scientists' own bias, so that whatever they find is as close to objective truth as possible. And... The activism, I think activism did have a place initially, but it's just gone. It should never be authoritarian like this. Mm. I think people should be allowed to have a voice and voice their concerns, but there should not be this overreach in terms of silencing and intimidating people, going after them in such a horrible way. I, I think in an uh, in a ideal world, activists and scientists could speak to each other and collaborate and get feedback from each other, but we're not there right now. And mm. It, it's really bad. The, I understand why people have lost faith in trusting so-called experts because we see, I mean, I'm similarly skeptical and across a range of issues because, because I see how biased it is with gender and you see something like gender as a social construct being reported in news. And when you know that's not true and it's just being reported as fact, it makes you say, okay, well, what else are they lying about? And I think uh -huh. this is the case for most people who are savvy about this. So I think it's going to take a lot to come back from where we are. And then with the issue with the kids, I, and ideally a child could go into a clinician and get a proper assessment and have just how it was done in the past before this became so politicized. Mm -hmm. I do think gatekeeping was a, an issue for trans people in the past and that they couldn't be, get the care that they needed or maybe they weren't their concerns weren't taken seriously as they should. But there needs to be a middle ground. It can't just go completely in the opposite direction a, as a way to try and rectify for the past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we live in interesting times. That is, uh, that is for sure. Do. Um, <laughs> so before we, uh, before we, we close out, 
where, what do you, um, what do you have coming up? Do you have anything? I know you've got your book that's out right now. Do you have anything else that is coming? I know you've got your new podcast as well. So anything you want to plug or let people know now's the time. Okay, so you can find me at drdebrasso.com. So my website, you can get The End of Gender in hard copy, ebook, and audiobook that's read by me. You can get it free on Audible right now. Uh, the paperback is available for pre-order because I know some people were waiting for that. So the paperback comes out, I believe, August 31st of this year. And uh, my podcast is the Dr. Deborah So Podcast. Again, if you go to my website, you can get the links. It's available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, everywhere. Um, yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. The last episode I did was on borderline personality disorder and relationships. So I spoke with my friend Josh Barnett. He is a former UFC heavyweight champion about his experiences dating people with borderline PD. And we talk about um, just basically signs to look out for. Also, the stigma around this condition. I think it's unnecessarily stigmatized. But just basically, if, if you are in a relationship or dating someone or married to someone with this condition, what you need to know. And my first episode was about selling news and the truth about making a living selling self-made pornography. I love that episode. I just, it you know, I think it's been very helpful. And hopefully we'll, that's a whole other conversation. But this this trend I see of people selling their nudes and they're just they are not thinking down the line in terms of of what it's going to be dr deborah so thank you so much for coming on the show it's been a real pleasure talking to you thank you so much Zuby. i really enjoyed it without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.